And so it begins. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, Veronica. Hi, Sarah. This is the first episode of our podcast. Numero uno. Brand new. Brand spanking new. Yeah. And hi to all of you guys who are listening. Thanks for being here. Yeah, we're very happy that you're here right now. Yes. <laughs> Welcome to Thick as Thieves, a podcast about art heists from all angles. We are two private investigators who have art backgrounds and are constantly curious about the intersection of art and crime. I'm Veronica. And I'm Sarah. And we will be taking you through a history of art heists that have occurred all over the globe, in museums, in homes, in other locations that are not institutions. Um, And we will discuss what happened, what the motives were, if they succeeded or failed, and why. That's about it. (laughs) Maybe more than that. (laughs) I'm Veronica, and I've been a private investigator for a year working only criminal defense cases, but I have a much more extensive background in working with artists, museums, journalism, art writing, and all the other, like running an art residency, various jobs that come into that realm of art world. But I primarily now look at art as my escape from my other job. However, it's hard not to think of things that happen in that realm in terms of something that would be investigated. (laughs) I'm Sarah, and I have been a private investigator for two and a half years. I do criminal defense work for the most part. I work on state cases, federal cases. I also have a background in art. I've worked in museums and galleries and have been an art writer for about 10 years. Oh, and we're friends. Oh, and we're we're kind of friends. (laughs) Yeah, we've lived together, and we've collaborated on projects, and we've been best friends for numerous years. I don't know. Yeah. What, How many four? years? More than that. Oh, my goodness. Five? It's 2019, <laughs> and we met in 2011, and I think we became, like, really good friends Eight. in 2012. Conservatively. Seven years. Seven years. Yeah, conservatively friends <laughs> for seven years. So, Vera, what do you have for us this week? We're going to start with an, a heist that happened in 1985 in Mexico City at the National Museum of Anthropology and History, which is, by the way, one of my five favorite museums in the world. I've been there. What did you think? I loved it. It was very large. It was just so big. Yeah, let's set the stage. So for people who have not been there or even people who have, what it's is kind of hard to imagine. Like? Yeah, because it's hard to imagine. Because I think you hear Museum of Anthropology and you think, boring. Um, I do. I like anthropology, but it's not known for being exciting necessarily, especially in display form. Um, This museum, on the other hand, is exciting, I think. At least just, I mean, when you, the, the curb appeal of the museum, like when you walk up to it, it's really stunning. Yeah, it's a shocking structure. What I remember most is you walk in and then there's that pillar in the middle with the waterfall coming off of it, which I actually don't really remember the story behind that pillar. I don't know if you do, but it is such a sight to behold. And whoever decided to put that there was genius. Yeah. So you walk in and you're like, whoa, what is this place? It looks like a sacred, like you're being transported in time in -hmm. a way, like back in the day when pillars had water coming out of the tops of them, because that's what it was like in ancient times. And then you wander through and it's like the whole history of Mexico 
the ancient history of Mexico is especially told in this building that you wander through and it's gigantic. It takes, I don't know how many hours you spent there, but I think it takes like five hours to really see everything. Which is, I mean, considering the amount of time and history that they cover, five hours is not too bad, but you can spend a very long time in that museum. And I would say it's pretty exhaustive in terms of the covering the cultures that were in Mexico. And basically the museum consists of all these artifacts from ancient times up until almost present day-ish. Um, but it's the emphasis is on the ancient times with these various little, like, there's jewelry, there are plates, there are little, like, statues and bowls and cups, and everything has a different significance. Masks, so many masks, and mm-hmm. they're made out of different um, materials as something as like fancy as gold or jade to anything as non-fancy as what's the most boring material that clay they clay yeah lots of clay so 1985 this is only um seven years after the museum actually opened so the museum opened mm-hmm. in the 70s and in 85 mexico city has dealt with a major crisis moment which is a giant earthquake had hit the city this happens. This happened just like last year in Mexico City. But the 1985 earthquake was a was a really big one. And then that same year, the city is rocked by a heist. And I won't really tell you the background of it. I'll just say what happened. It's uh, Christmas Day in 1985. And I don't know who the first person was to discover these missing items. But the number is debatable, but anywhere between like 122 and 150 items were stolen from the museum over like during Christmas Eve, which is in Mexico a major holiday. So let's start with that. They wake up to Christmas morning. <laughs> there are no presents for Merry the museum. <laughs> There's the absence of presents We've or taken whatever. all your shit. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's like reverse Christmas. Christmas for someone else who stole. Right. It was Christmas for them. Yeah. So the numbers are debatable over how much was taken because all the different reports say different things. At first, they said it was 111 objects. And then when they looked at the catalog and what was not there anymore, later they realized, oh, it's more like 140 to 150. And there are so many different objects that some very small that it's it's hard for them to tell because, as you know, cataloging this is not the most fun thing in the world to do, where you're keeping record of everything you have and where it is. This is like standard practice in museums, but... People get sleepy. Yeah, people slack (laughs) on the job, so they weren't totally sure how many items were gone. They just knew that some were gone, including like a very well-known death mask. It was a jade death mask. I think that was the most valuable item that was based on a Mayan king. Mm -hmm. Well, also a Mayan god. So that was gone. So Merry Christmas, Mexico City, 1985. We took your stuff, your valuable cultural assets and the city was like up in arms over this obviously their heritage and so they immediately see this as disgusting i mean when i say they i just would say like mexico is like how could they do this i don't know what the equivalent would be here in a way because i'm not that patriotic (laughs) but what would it be like the liberty bell (laughs) (laughs) maybe yeah (laughs) i don't know if that's our ancient history that is not our ancient history (laughs) At all. But, you know, 
they I think Mexico's more in tune with their ancient history than the United States is because they just eradicated ancient history in a way. They just like stomped on top of it. So mm-hmm. not to say it's not honored. However, so did the media just like go into a frenzy? Was it a Christmas Day media frenzy? I think it took them a minute to freak out about it. I would love to just, if I could be transported in time, I would love to be transported to Christmas Day 1985, like right where (laughs) it was all happening. Like how do they deal with it right in the moment? So they detained the nine, I believe it was nine security guards who had spent Christmas Eve there getting drunk. So they were wasted. Yeah, they're there getting really drunk and not paying attention to the museum. They're not expecting a heist. Naturally. Yeah. So their one job. So their one job is to prevent a heist. That's all they have to do, but instead they're just getting really drunk. I understand why they were doing that. Sure, it was Christmas Eve. Yeah. They're they're like, why aren't we ha- with our families? Right. right they're now? having to work. That's what happens. So when they're you having make like a family gathering moment. Yeah. So they're detained and this is immediately I'd say the the panic or the sensation that follows is that Like, this is a serious thing. This is not just, like, any old art heist. This is the most insane art heist of the, like, that's ever happened. And we're dealing with, like, a very organized crime group. The the sort of, like, sensation over who did it is, is that whoever did it is super powerful, very good at this, have a whole, like, history within this profession that is stealing objects. However, once more people get to talk about this there's also the issue of like well what are they gonna whoever took them what are they going to do with these pre-columbian artifacts because you can't really sell them the fact that they are what they are puts them in a position to be you can't whoever would collect them there's no real value whereas like with uh paintings that can go in this sort of black market of stolen artworks but ancient artifacts is a different story the monetary value there is a monetary value placed on it in terms of like what it's worth but there isn't much of a monetary value placed on it based on where it can go into other realms of currency so that was another thing that everyone was speculating on was like well what do they do it for and what are they going to do with these objects because they can't really profit off of them like one curator in um in LA uh who is like the curator of the LA Museum of Natural History he said, whoever wants to buy these, they would buy them, like if there's a major collector who wants to buy them off these thieves, they just want to hoard them. Like that's all they can do. They can't circulate these into the world in any way. And you can never let anyone know that you have them. Yeah. Because they're stolen goods. Right. So they're just useless. They become useless. So that was another thing that was realized. I feel like that's what happens in a lot of heists. Like the people who steal them do not understand that there's nowhere for them to go. I know. You know, they think that they hear the numbers and then they think, oh, $3 million. Oh, $500,000. But that's not a real number that you can just trade it in for. <laughs> I know. And that's part of what why art heists are so interesting is because the motives behind doing it if someone knows what they're doing and they're not doing it for monetary value they're doing it for something truly bizarre they're doing it for the experience of stealing something valuable from a museum or they're doing it in some cases to distract people from something else going on Mm -hmm. but it's rare to actually be able to take those goods and then get the money and they move on into the world and everything's it's a crime that doesn't have like an ending that's very neat like even successful ever right but i think people a lot of these thieves who go into it simply just don't know that 
Right. So before we get to like who who did this heist, because that's the that's an interesting part of this. I have a question. Have you ever been in a museum and wanted to steal something? Not actually steal it, but you were like, if I could steal this, I would if I could have this. Yeah. I mean, there have been objects that I have wanted to take very bad or just want to borrow. <laughs> just just to have for a little if I could rent them for a minute. Just um, cuddle with. Just cuddle with for a little while, put them on my windowsill and look at them for sure. Also, the museums that I've worked in, there have been things that were in storage for years and years and decades that just would never see the light of day for one reason or another. And I remember thinking, I could probably just take that. I know. <laughs> I've had the same experience. Where I, like, I didn't, so for the sad. record, I've never stolen anything from any place that I worked. But there were moments when, I mean, sometimes when things are in storage closets for decades it's sad because there's such they're these beautiful items and you just want to see them out in the world museums usually have huge storage facilities or you know storage things that they keep all of the work that they're not showing at any given time in or things that are maybe they're not sure about the provenance or they don't know exactly where it came from so they can't really show it things like that but yeah there's i have a little art thief hiding inside of me somewhere i think it's it's buried down in there and i, I won't mean, let it come out but i do too that's like why we're doing this really i think we haven't really confessed this to each other but i think we both know we have a little art thief inside of us slowly this podcast is just going to be us planning our big art heist yeah at the end of it this the show is going to have a very at the end ending. we're actually going to be arrested for something that's like an art heist that's happened because we've talked so much about wanting to steal Right, we're going to leave little Easter eggs throughout yeah. each episode that's <laughs> going to give clues to what we've done. Right. <laughs> but I think everyone's had that. Maybe not everyone, but a lot of people, especially people who love museums or art or both, have had that desire and quickly like maybe squashed it. But in this case, two people did this heist in Mexico City. They were just students, veterinarian students. Is that how you say that? Veterinary? Veterinarian. Veterinarian. I kind of I kind of mush it. I say kinda, veterinarian. That's what I say, too. Because Vet- veterinarian sounds... Yeah, if you said it the way it's actually spelled, it's like veterinarian students. <laughs> to I say veterinarian. Veterinarian students. Sounds ridiculous either way. It's much better the, the way we say it. They're just living in a suburb outside Mexico City called Satellite. Um, which is a very cool name for a city. I know. Well, also kind of sad. It's like... They lived in a neighborhood that maybe was an aspiring little city outside of Mexico City. And then they were like, oh, it's one of our satellite cities. And then they just sort of forgot about it and called it like satellite. No, that's what I that's my invented story of this, <laughs> that neighborhood or whatever. I picture this little like ignored kind of like spacecraft just floating in complete silence around a planet. Just I think that's how these these two thieves felt living in satellite, wanting to become vets. Why did they, was a vet something? It was just a job. Yeah. I really don't know if they were in it for, like, the passion of taking care of animals. But one thing they did was that they were casing the joint, as we say. Like, they were going to the Museum of Anthropology for months leading up to this heist. And they would watch the security guard, take note of the objects. They were studying this place for a while. I wonder why they picked that place in particular. Because, so, so this museum is in Chapultepec Park. Sort of. Mm-hmm. Is it around there, right? Yeah. Is it? Yeah, okay. Um, and there are a lot of museums and, his- and historical places in this park. I mean, there are seemingly plenty of spots where you could steal, steal some interesting stuff. I wonder why they targeted that place, if it was something that they'd learned about or something that 
maybe they'd heard, I mean, I wonder if they had heard like that it was opening and heard values of objects or something. Well, it opened during their lifetimes because they were like in their late 20s, early 30s when they did this. And so when they were in school, probably like every other school, they were taken there and they were told this is what you are. This is our history and our heritage. So I would say that probably had more value than any other museum to them, unless they were frequenting other museums as much. And I guess there, there are art museums, but you can't really, it's easier to steal a tiny necklace or a little gold figurine than it is to steal a large painting. Right. It's so as we will learn, people still, <laughs> they steal large paintings all the time. Right. But this is definitely easier to just like snatch an object and stick it in your pocket. Right. You can easily take 140 things rather than a typical art heist, which is like two paintings. Mm-hmm. They made out with a lot of things. A lot of loot. A lot of loot. Yeah, so they went to the museum at like 2 a.m. So the reports stay, but like who's to really know? Because there's more on this, but um, you just burped. <laughs> <laughs> you burped and you're not the one drinking beer. <laughs> So they go there, and they enter the museum through the air conditioner. Oh. Air conditioner ducts, to be specific. They didn't, <laughs> they didn't like, get brought in through the air and then come out of the air conditioner vents. But um, they crawl through the ducts, and they went inside with a bag, several bags, and just stuffed them with their favorite objects, including that famous mask and um, the jade mask. The jade mask. And also a, um, a bowl, some type of obsidian bowl that was like a monkey that you drank out of in oh, ancient times. Oh, that's like really deep black. Yeah. Anyway, that's what that was made out of. And they take off. Bye. Into the night. And so they had no, when they discovered that these items were gone, they had no idea who did it. Investigators were put on the case and found really Nothing. Okay, so this museum had zero security other than, what, seven or eight drunk security guards? Nine security guards that night and had never dealt with this before. So It was a young museum, fair enough. It was a virgin. They lost their virginity. (laughs) They lost their heist virginity. Yeah. (laughs) Other museums, they've had some protocol. They have framework because they've dealt with this before. They're familiar with it for some reason. But this one I don't think was really gearing up for that. And I think that's sort of what happens with museums is until something is breached, until something is, you know, something goes wrong, they don't really put in all of the protective measures that they need to. Mm-hmm. Unless you've got a director who knows what's up and has dealt with it before and knows what kinds of things need to be protected. But sadly, there are a lot of museums with inadequate security. It's true. I would say nowadays there's so much more in place to secure items, but uh, this museum was really easy to steal from at the time. So when they are not finding anyone, they decide, when I say they, I'm just gonna say like, Mexican authorities, uh, media, everyone's saying it's like the CIA or the KGB. So like serious people. Yeah. Really professional criminals. Yes. Not two veterinarians. Yeah, no one was (laughs) guessing that. No one even pondered that as a possibility. One reason they thought this is because in 1972, a Mexican law banned the sale of pre-Columbian objects for private collections. This law was created just 13 years before this happened. So because of this law that had been created, which I'm curious about why that law was created. Um, I guess it was happening. Mm-hmm. They were, And I don't know specific instances of how it was happening, but 
this law is created for that purpose. So because of that, they believe it's foreigners. It's foreigners doing it. Someone who's not from Mexico, from the outside, coming in, taking these, and taking them back out again. So they're searching on a level that's like not the level it's actually happening on at all. They are looking for these items on a level that's like global, like getting really like 007 about it, I think. Right. So instead of like looking down the street to like the dudes living in the small house, yeah. they're like, they're searching on like a global level of, of what are the warlords and like all these huge people that could be behind this very sophisticated heist. Exactly. Whereas, I mean, in reality, just within 50 miles of the museum, there's a bag filled with at least 40 or so of the items just in a closet in a suburban house. We will never know the full story. I'm just gonna leap ahead and whatever. But when the thieves were found many, many years later, by many, many years, I mean like five years later. Okay, so so they got away with it for five years. Yeah. Okay. They got away with it for a while. Nothing was discovered for a year. And then like the World Cup happens in Mexico in 1986. And all sensation of this event just kind of goes away. No one cares about it anymore. Now they just care about the World Cup. However, in that year, the visitors that went to that museum like skyrocketed. So many people showed up and they kept those cases empty intentionally so that they could come and look at them and say, this is the case where all these valuable objects were stolen. Mm-hmm. That's kind of a good marketing. Yeah, I, mean, I was going to ask you, if you had been the curator, would you have done that? I mean, yeah. I mean, that's that's a pretty good way to start the dialogue about what happened. I mean, I guess it's embracing em- embracing the tragedy, which it was a tragedy for them. I don't know. I kind of feel like it's, you know, sometimes when people have someone in their family die and then they just leave their bedroom as it was mm-hmm. for a long period of time until they are able to kind of clear it out. It, that's what it feels like. It's like, we're just going to leave these cases empty and you guys can just look at what used to be there. Yeah, they've done that a couple on with a couple a couple of things that went missing. Is they'll put a replica of it and put a little note that says, you know, this is a replica of whatever the thing was. But the empty cases are dramatic, and it probably hammers home the point that there were a lot of objects here once. This is where they all used to be. You can look at the you know the amount of cases that are empty and see what we've lost. And that happened. And so people would go and visit and just stare at these empty cases for a long time, and they really didn't want to see anything else but the empty <laughs> cases. <laughs> they didn't want to learn about the rest of the history like, or all the other the wonderful objects. The only history that <laughs> matters is that which was stolen. <laughs> and that we look at just the void of it. Cultures like that, though. They do. I mean, when Why someone does that dies, hit home more than the actual presence of the object? I have no idea. But it's like, yeah, when an artist or an author or a musician dies, then suddenly everyone loves their entire catalog. And there's this, this huge, you know, resurgence of love and admiration for everything that they've done. Meanwhile, while that person was alive, especially if it's someone in the, like, twilight years of their career, they were totally ignored. I mean, I guess to use an anthropological term. Let's um, do it. (laughs) Yeah, because we're talking about this. Isn't that called like symbolic immortality in a way or cultural immortality? Like this notion, it comes from the anthropologist Malinowski. I think he coined it or found the language to it. I don't think he's the first person that thought of this, but he was like, I have the language to put on this. And he made the argument for how much humans fear death. And as a result, they wonder how will they continue to live beyond their biological death. And that can happen in a few forms, like biological immortality is have children and they have children. Symbolic or cultural immortality is that you put things out in the world like art and books and music 
and you'll forever exist in that. And then do we react to these things being stolen or lost or people dying because it's that moment where it reminds all of us of that sort of fear of death or how memory works in, in conjunction with this, I think, plays a part in it, too. Yeah. So do you want to know who did it? Yes, their please. <laughs> so their names were... They're no longer alive. Carlos Purchase Trevino and Ramon Sardina Garcia, two students from a school that I believe is called the um, University of Autonomous Being or something. <laughs> it has like a, I like did a quick research on them and I was, and they went to a, a university of like autonomous entities or something. What does that even mean? I don't know. It, I guess it just means like autonomous. Doesn't matter who you are i don't i don't know it sounds kind of cool does like, it mean you just go into the building and you, you do your own education and I, I leave <laughs> i don't know maybe it's the kind of university where you go and you tell every you, you tell your parents i'm gonna study to be a vet but really you're studying to do an art heist <laughs> and it's like an autonomous university or clearly something. the university wasn't doing such a great job at giving them hope in their future so maybe not or maybe filling them with such a zest for life mm, that, that they um, felt that they needed to do this thing yeah so they go in and they do this. They get caught. Well, Carlos Trevino gets caught, or Carlos Perez Trevino. So who's the ringleader? There's always a ringleader in these things. Arguably, it's it's Carlos. Carlos. Okay. Another thing that will help you listeners out there, if you're curious to put a visual to this heist, there's actually a movie that just came out about this last year, called Museo, and it it's just about this story and it does fictionalize it a little bit and it does give these thieves different names but it is entirely based on this who is in the movie so now when you picture carlos (laughs) (laughs) just picture um gal garcia bernal because that is now the face of carlos purchase trevino beautiful beautiful face yeah that is that's his face now he will forever be immortalized through him what an actor yeah did you see the movie yeah what did you think? I loved it. Me too. Well, there's a lot of cool shots. Yeah, that it's was kind of different. Like, I it's, feel like director-wise, yeah, it, they had great shots. Like the filmmaking was cool. Filmmaking is wonderful. Unexpected. You're kind of. Ex- it, I don't know. I was expecting it to be a little more. I mean, I guess it's linear, but there are a lot of interesting film choi- filmic choices that they make, including a fight scene that's very funny. And oh my god, yeah, <laughs> really emotional. <laughs> and during the heist, the way that they decided to do the stills, it's kind of like snapshots as they're going through the heist, but they're clearly moving while they're I don't know, it's bizarre, but I liked it. It was cool. I, I have to say, it might be like my favorite movie I've ever seen about an art heist because most of the How movies, how many are there? <laughs> lots, but really? they're garbage. I mean. Sorry, everybody who loves Thomas Crown Affair, but I'm not into that. It's, I'm not into that either. It's so like, da da da, and then you know, it's it's like a good-looking person, and they know what they're doing, and there's this like moment where your heart's racing because they have lasers that they have to get underneath, and they steal the object, and then the last scene is of them making out with like Catherine Zeta-Jones or whoever. It's just, <laughs> it's very like cookie cutter. I'm just I'm not, not the way it ever goes. It's so not reality yeah if this if this podcast can do anything maybe it can change um how people make movies about art heists <laughs> and Get make it right and make them more like museo yeah a little bit weird or more complex because my favorite art heists are ones that are where the motives are very weird like someone is bored 
and they want to add excitement to their lives. <laughs> Great motive. And they make Great a motive for a story. <laughs> will forever change their lives. So the movie does fictionalize it a bit, but it also is kind of honest because a lot of it is like how we don't really know what happened. They took off with the objects. They left some of them in one of their suburban houses. And then they went to the coast. They went to Apico. <laughs> Acapulco. Acapulco. (laughs) And then they got involved with a drug ring. Maybe only one of them did, actually. So the the way some of these objects were found, besides the fact that just a bag was left in a closet with a bunch of them, was through investigations done on drug, like selling of drugs in Mexico. So through looking for people selling drugs, they found that some of these drugs had been bought with ancient artifacts from that museum. <laughs> and once What that, a way to use those. Yeah. Just trade in a jade mask for, you know, a few kilos of cocaine. Exactly. It was pretty much like that. So the character that is played by Bernal, whose name is actually Carlos Trevino, he went to, uh, to the coast. I don't want to say that city's name again. Why can't <laughs> I say that? Try it again. Acapulco. <laughs> Great. Why is that hard? Acapulco. So he went there and he um, he got involved with a drug dealer, a dancer. That actually really happened. They hung out with those two people. And he, when buying drugs from them, told them that he was the famous museum robber. And proved it by showing them that he had objects. Such a rookie mistake. I know. Clearly so then, his first big crime. <laughs> yeah. The first thing about criminals is like, learn how to be an actual criminal. I mean, And not, just don't yeah. tell anyone you did it. It's such an easy thing. In so many cases that I work, non-art heist cases, my client, who's always the defendant, is he he admitted to it. He said something somewhere along the way. If you don't ever tell anyone you did it, you're going to be better off. Yeah, but the thing with this realm of dealing drugs and all that is that people brag. How they else love are they? To brag. How they don't have resumes that they give each other. You know, they don't, they're not like, hey, I need to prove to you that I'm I'm a badass. So Would love it if they did. Here's my resume. Like they actually have to brag. And then in this case, he has proof. He has like ancient yeah. objects. Now these drug dealers aren't necessarily like specialized in making sure these are not fakes, but they bought it. And so he gets into this ring of of selling cocaine and such. And this other guy named El Cabo, he gets involved. He's the one who gets caught in 1989 when there's this investigation going on. And when he gets caught, he offers this information in exchange for, you know, better treatment, lesser sentence, getting out of jail, whatever. And that is how... So he's a rat. He's a total rat. El Cabo will forever be known as a rat. (laughs) (laughs) He flipped. He flipped on on poor Bernal. And um, even though this is not in the movie at all, (laughs) this part of it... (laughs) So then Purchase Trevino goes to jail for several things, including this, and is murdered 10 years later, like shot. In jail? Or out no, of jail? No, no, he gets out of jail. So he goes to jail probably in 1990. I, I'm really a little bit fuzzy on this because all the accounts are a bit different, but all I know is he's dead and it's not of old age. <laughs> <laughs> got shot. Yeah, and then he got shot and not in jail. So he got out of jail, got shot, and then his partner in crime... Of that specific crime, the art heist <laughs> crime, um, Ramon Sardina Garcia, he dies a few years later in a shootout with cops. So after this heist, their lives were forever involved in crime rings of some sort. And, you know, their lives didn't last too long. 
following. So sad. They could have been upstanding veterinarians. I know. Just one bad decision. I wonder how many one times Christmas Eve. either of them ever thought, like, if only I was just scratching a dog behind her ears. Is <laughs> <laughs> that what vets do? <laughs> That's all they do. Scratching a dog's ear. <laughs> Yeah, they could have been saving animals. Instead, they decided that they needed to go steal 140 objects and live a life of crime. Yeah, that's what happens when you grow up in a town called Satellite. Yeah, it's very sad. Yeah. All right, so did any of the objects get recovered? Most of them. Most of them. Yeah, a majority of the objects. It took some years, but I would say they're, they have everything except, arguably, this is arguable, but five objects. So... Wow. I know. Good on them. I mean, I guess it makes... No more empty cases. It makes sense in a way. Because what were they going to... These objects were going to be recovered because what were they going to do? Throw them in the ocean or somewhere well, I mean, they to find? might have. I mean, it, it seems like they could have easily just destroyed them and skipped town. Let's talk about that. I know there are cases where this has happened, where people have stolen things and then destroyed them. But the reason for this heist was obviously some sort of like life needs to be more exciting and this is like a symbolic moment so when you steal something and that's the value you're placing on it basically the value they're placing on it let's not make it monetary they're making the value like their own lives their whole futures they exchange them to steal these objects and then have them just host them like carry them around in some shitty bags for a while imagine then deciding to destroy them and walk away like it never happened it seems like that'd be really hard to do, to just be like, I'm going to blow this bag up and no one will ever know it was me. So they just keep taking them around like they're, they're children. Yeah. Like they're responsible for them in a way. And it's probably some symbol of hope. Like if I can, if I can do something with these at some point in the future, I can have everything that I was desiring before. Yeah, exactly. So all, almost all of them have been recovered and now the cases are really not empty anymore as far as I know. When I went, they I didn't see any empty cases, so that's not a feature of the museum anymore. I, I wish I would have known. I wish I would have known which, uh, you know, I'm sure I might have passed that jade mask and wasn't even paying attention to it, really. But God, imagine how many people now go visit that <laughs> jade mask. The certain, it's not only a death mask that was worn in ancient times during very important ceremonies, but now it's a featured object in a YouTube in the original 80s. movie. Yeah, <laughs> carried around in a crappy suitcase in the 80s. <laughs> For years. It's just a mask that was worn by Gail Garcia Barnell. Yeah. That's what it is now. I bet he got to wear it, too. I bet when he signed on to this movie, he was like, I'll take this movie deal if I get to wear the jade mask for a week. That would be my requirement. That's it? That's all you require? No. No money, no nothing. Just (laughs) I'll just wear this jade mask But it's like an indie film, so it's probably not like how much he gets paid for other movies. Yeah, probably not. Maybe it was something he tried to negotiate. I don't know. Here's a little quote from him. Let's hear it. No, so he's very passionate about the script and the story. And one of the things he said in an interview when being asked about working on this movie, he's like, when you look at the history of those pieces, they are mythological. They are part of where we came from. So at the time they played those pieces. Wait, this is obviously not written correctly. (laughs) Wait one second. You also don't have to say it in that voice. (laughs) That's my burnout voice. (laughs) Just in a regular voice. Well, also just like copy and paste this onto a document. So clearly this is like, so at the time they played those pieces, they also became a part of that mythology. It's not played. So now I have to insert a word for him. That's fine. You think he'll be cool with that? Yeah. 
So at the time that they, let's choose the word, stole. Mm -hmm. In the words of Bernal, he said, when you look at the history of those pieces, they are mythological. They are part of where we came from. So at the time that they stole those pieces, they also became a part of that mythology. Do you agree with that? Yeah. I mean, that that's now part of the story. Yeah. They're part of the history. So I wonder if they have that on the wall label. Mm. If you're a curator, would you include that in the wall label? Probably. While I think that it would be more interesting, I would probably feel so much anger towards that event that I may not, just in spite of not encouraging people to steal more because it's one of those things like if you like the more attention you give to criminals the more it encourages other people to do that you know people who feel like nobody's of like well i could at least get some modicum of fame if i do this crime and then i'll at least my name or face will be on the news or you'd be forever in the you know title blocks of museums so I would say no, I wouldn't put it in there, but they already kind of started a a pattern of, I guess by displaying the empty cases, they sort of already did that. Right. Honest, and I just had a thought right now when you were saying that if they put that on the wall label and it encouraged more people to try to steal art, then they would really be putting all the money they poured into security. Like that would be coming into play more, which is not a plus side but suddenly I had this image of like people constantly trying to steal art and like people with guns like just shooting people trying to (laughs) steal art and it would just become really crazy (laughs) so yeah thinking about that I I then maybe the security guards wouldn't be drunk because they would know that at any given time an art heist might happen and they need to be on their toes yeah imagine the um, interview to work at that museum as a security guard they're like (laughs) do you get drunk on the job That is our number one (laughs) most important question. (laughs) I wonder what happened to the guards. Did they get fired? Oh, they. I mean, I imagine. Well, they were detained for a while. And then who wouldn't? I would fire them. Wouldn't you? (laughs) Am I I an asshole? (laughs) I mean, I I would have a little internal debate. A, yeah, it was. I mean, it was Christmas Eve. So, sure, I would... I can see why they might have had a little more, you know, kind of merry spirit and wanting to celebrate together. B, heists don't happen that often. <laughs> so okay. They really slipped up. The just one, I don't know. If don't you know. were their boss, you would <laughs> call them into your office after they've been detained and you'd say, okay, guys, it was Christmas Eve and I get it. <laughs> I do. And heists don't really happen that often. So just... Please go do your jobs and don't get drunk on the job. Okay? And they'd be like, yes. And they probably would go do a great job, right? Yeah, because, I, and then I'll become the cool boss. Or would they? <laughs> or would they then proceed to get drunk every night? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Hmm. This is something I need to work through, I guess. What would you do? I'm thinking about it. I would, I'd probably do something like, okay, two weeks, no pay while I figure out what to do. <laughs> And then I would have... So you just filibuster for a while. Right. <laughs> just put it off. And then what? Okay, so two weeks pass. Time um, to make a decision, Vero. And then I would do interviews with each of them and ask them how drunk <laughs> each of them were. I don't know. I mean, maybe some of them were, like, really partying and some of them weren't. You really think you're going to be able to untangle that? And then bl- place blame on, what, four of the nine? Oh, that sounds like a mess. It's that easier like to just big mess. fire all of them or keep all of them. So I would fire I think- all of them and you would keep all of them. Yeah. I don't know that I would I th- keep all of I them. I don't want to fire them. Firing's me. 
I mean, firing is mean, and consider the lesson they learned. So now you've got nine guards who have been so traumatized by their own oversight, they are not going to do it again. They and they had one job. They had one job. They really failed. Like, failure can really do a lot to somebody and really, like, light the fire under someone's ass. So they failed. That's and true. And if they were to ever have two heists that they just let happen, I mean, could you imagine? So you've got nine hypervigilant security guards now. That's why I would keep them. I would do that, too. I think that's really optimistic. But I'd be really <laughs> upset if they <laughs> fucked up again. I'd be like, guys. I think it's it like shame on me or shame on them. Like, what is it really then? I could butcher it like George Bush. Have you seen the video of George Bush butchering that quote where he says, shame on you. <laughs> shame on me. <laughs> it's really <laughs> funny. Um, I know what you're talking about. <laughs> Back in the days when um, someone kind of slipping up when the president sounding stupid was really like went viral a, a was crazy thing. <laughs> yeah. Nowadays, it's expected. It, it's every single day. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, poor guy. We really gave him a hard time. Yeah. GW, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I think I would. I think that I would keep them. Try and give them another chance. Hmm. I think I don't. I just don't think I would do a quick mass firing. I do like this angle that we're taking, because we look at it from every angle. Um, mm-hmm. The angle of being the boss. Yeah. I think this is a cool angle. What do you do? Yeah, what do you do as the boss when a heist happens? I, I want to look at, like, all the different heists and all the times they fired or kept the people who were, like, on guard or on duty the days of those heists to right, understand yeah. this more. Because it's, I mean, it's a case-by-case situation. In this case, it's on the extreme end of they were getting drunk when this shit was getting stolen. Right. They were not patrolling the grounds. They were doing a bad thing. At that moment. Yeah. Suddenly my heart's really going out to these guards. Just I imagining know. how their lives changed forever after all these ob- ancient objects were stolen. They, I mean, they probably never lived it down. They certainly probably could not ever get a security guard job again. They were laughing stocks of the guard world. Mm-hmm. You know? You had one job. It's true. If you're a security guard and want to weigh in, please call us at one 800 thickestthieves.com. That's a phone number. <laughs> you can tell how much we use phones now. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Um, what else? Mm-hmm. Do you have any lingering questions on this? On this heist? Has anything ever been stolen from that museum again? Not that I know. Good. They learned their lesson. Who did exactly? The museum. The museum I guess did. Yeah. I mean, they really did. I wonder if, they're, if they changed any of their security protocol after this. For sure. Like, I wonder if they were, like, more guards, more cameras, more everything. I don't think they even had cameras. They didn't have cameras back then. I mean, they had cameras in the 80s, but this museum did not have cameras installed, as far as I know. Why? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's 1985. I will say this, because the investigation was going so poorly, as in they were finding nobody, and they they were, like, really basing it on hearsay or... Or, like, kind of uh, sensationalized notions of how art heists work. So investigators were following these really hyped-up trails. And not the right ones, clearly. And there wasn't much evidence. So the Association of Friends of the National Museum of Anthropology offered a reward of 50 million million pesos, which is $2.6 million. $2.6 million? To someone, whoever could give precise data. Wow, that's that's a big award. I know, award. not an award, 
reward. What do you think happened when that announcement was released? Uh, everyone called and said they know who did it. According to my resources, nobody said anything. What? Okay, I have worked cases where there's a $500 reward for any tips leading to... It's usually, like, leading to the conviction of the correct... And in those cases, who would who would post those? The police department. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, so the police department would sometimes post an award or... or I have to stop saying award. <laughs> the, <laughs> the award goes to... <laughs> the police department would sometimes post a reward or investigators or the family. Um, so the family of, say, you've got a missing yeah. child or something like that, they would do the reward. Um, but the thing is, is that, sh- sure, when you post something like that, everyone comes out of the woodwork saying, you know, they heard Billy was the one who killed them. They heard, you know, so-and-so, I... I there's, the stories come from everywhere, yeah. so you really have to be careful with that kind of stuff. But it, it can help, you know. It can help to at least oh, keep. It's a huge motivator, but it also is like you get drowned out in fate, like leads that don't go anywhere. Right. Yeah. So no one called in. No and one said is, anything. This is based on a um, an article I read by a Mexico City journalist named Juliana Fregoso, and according to her report, nobody said anything. That's I shocking. Know. I wonder why. Is that a cultural thing? You mean, in Mexican culture, no one says anything when <laughs> money is dangled in their faces? <laughs> I don't know. I just feel like in America, it would be people would be biting at the yeah, bit. Or so, we're like so capitalist. We're like, I got something. I got something why, for you. We're saying it in Southern accents because we are from the South. Yes, and I, all but, uh, my cases are in the South and people really jumping at anything like that. Right. Because um, even if they have wrong information or just information that they are completely oh, yeah. uncertain about, they're like, maybe. <laughs> even know? if money isn't on the table, people will do that just oh, because yeah. it's something to do. Yeah. The mm-hmm. rumor mills in the South are just incredible. Right. Incredible. So the fact that these thieves in Mexico, the fact that no one said anything or that they didn't say anything to enough people kind of in their immediate environment is pretty, pretty shocking. Mm-hmm. Considering that they were kind of, it sounds like they were normal dudes with families. And did they have wives or these guys? Or no. Yeah. Okay. Not any of that. They were like living with their parents. Okay, so they were just like college bachelor types. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I mean they were the perfect candidates to do the robbery of the century. <laughs> In terms of like who was going to deal with the the consequences of it, they didn't have kids or wives to deal with the aftermath. Right. So they could have potentially just skipped town and disappeared and gone to the beach gone to acapulco where they would drink out of the obsidian monkey bowl drink beer out of it not any beer drink modello <laughs> we're taking some creative liberties with yeah this story. <laughs> um, i do think they did probably drink out of those things i know that's in the movie there's like a part in the movie where Bernal is just like drinking booze out of the like famous artifact with his lover. I mean, that seems like a possibility. Like it really happened. Yeah, I mean, I, I would do that. I definitely would do that. Right. <laughs> so if I would do that, they would do that. Right. If both you and I would drink booze out of the obsidian monkey head yeah. bowl thing, I would be so disappointed if a thief did not do that. I know. Like enjoy it while you can. Yeah. And by enjoying it be sacrilegious and destroy it (laughs) actually (laughs) that's the story of the museum of anthropology in mexico city 1985 um and we're very lucky to have a specific 
artwork of the Jade Mask created by Alex Lockwood. The great Alex Lockwood. And I wish I could actually wear the mask that he drew on my face. Yes. We have discussed cutting out the mask and tying string to it and wearing it on our face. Right. Since we can't (laughs) wear the actual one. Yes. It's really amazing. And you can see it on our Instagram page at Thickest Thieves Forever. Yeah. So that's the first heist... The first heist I'm presenting on. <laughs> Not the first heist of the century or the first heist of history of heists. <laughs> Alright, so this podcast is brought to you by We Own This Town. <laughs> and our theme song is by the one and only Patrick Dampier. And the artwork for the show comes from the talented hand of Saskia Warner. Thanks for listening, and if you haven't had enough of us after all that chatter that we just did, go follow us on Instagram at Thickest Thieves Forever. 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 (laughs) Forever. (laughs) Hold on, I gotta burp first. (laughs) She's drinking, uh... (laughs) We don't have to include it. She's drinking a Modelo, which is... It's uh, an honor... Of this, it's very episode. appropriate for this episode right yeah. now. Yeah, <laughs> Modelo Especial brought to you by. <laughs> <laughs>